And we are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of truth, anti-censorship, and deep discussion in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Hey, Rod, how you doing? Have a good three-day weekend? I did, Lee, I did. Um, how about yourself? How was it for you? Just fine. It was pretty hot here in Sioux Falls. It got up to the 90s. Which some people are surprised Sioux Falls can get up to that. But it happens. So we, we had a couple of big thunderstorms actually over the weekend. Like 10,000 people lost power because of a tornado. Damn, that's a lot of people. Yeah, some people are surprised there's 10,000 people in Sioux Falls. But we have that too. Now, do we have Jason today? And Jason is there. Yes. How are you, Lee? And how are you, Rod? That, let me just say who that is. I won't be casual. Jason Goodman <laughs> from Crowdsource of Truth is Truth Tuesday, and Jason Goodman apparently is there. How you doing, Jason? I'm well, Lee. Good to be here. Great to have you. We have a great show, and it's partially your fault. <laughs> and you know what I mean by that. Our first guest, yep. John Mark Dugan. Tell people who John Mark Dugan is and why it's your fault. Well, John Mark Dugan is a U.S. Marine and a retired uh, deputy sheriff from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office in Florida. And he was a whistleblower for corruption in the Sheriff's Office and created a WikiLeaks-style website where people could report uh, corruption and provide evidence without revealing who they were because they were very, you know, the, the sheriffs uh, were seeking revenge against these people and they found out that it was John doing this and he was basically run out of town. They tried to kill him. It's a very big, complicated story, but he is now in Russia and uh, he has become an independent journalist and he is bad wolf. People can follow him on Rumble. And he's been doing reporting from Mariupol and Azovstal. He's been going all over. And he's gonna join us today. And Jason and I, the reason I'm saying it's his fault facetiously, by the way, that's a word to say when you have a stroke, but <laughs> facetiously, is that Jason and I do a weekly show on Patreon. Yes. Right? Called yep. High Dive. And a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, John Mark Dugan, Jason brought him on our show on High Dive. And I was honored to meet John Mark Dugan. And I'd never talked to him before, but I immediately liked the guy. He's a very yeah. no-nonsense guy. You yeah. know what I mean by that? I don't mean... Absolutely. He's a tight ass. I just mean, you know what I mean? He's, he's straight to the point. Factual face. Yes, right. yes. Very plain spoken. And yes. I was excited because he'd been in Mariupol. And I always mm-hmm. like it when there's people who've been on the ground mm-hmm. because they actually know what they're talking about. Right. Right? Because yeah, Jason and I, yeah. and I'm not, I'm, I'm being fair about this. Jason and I don't have any firsthand experience in Mariupol. Everything Correct. we have is from people who told us what they found. And while I try to find first-hand sources, in other words, I try not to find sources who've heard about stuff on the news. I was excited to talk to John Mark Dugan, and we had a fantastic conversation, 
And the thing I predicted, I said it at the top of the show. Remember this, Jason? I said, I've never talked to you before, but let me right. make some predictions. <laughs> this is what you yeah. found. Yeah. Remember yeah. I said that? Uh, you were dead on. Everything. Because if somebody's been on the ground, I think the truth is so obvious. Yeah. And the Ukrainian lies about this war are so blatant that the truth, when you read, when you look at people like Patrick Lancaster or any, or even Ukrainians, I've, I, I've said this before, one of the ways you can find out the truth is by listening to Ukraine. And when they're admitting something, you can probably take it to the bank that it's worse than they're admitting. Well, and when they admit something that's unfavorable to them, that that is considered right. in the law. When someone admits something unfavorable to themselves, that's extremely damning. Yes, and I'll talk about that in one second, too. But John Mark Dugan is our guest in the first hour. He's going to be a fantastic guest, fantastic segment. We'll be talking about Kherson, the region in uh, Ukraine. I, I might as well call it Russia now. The Kherson region, no, I'm serious. I, I, it's, it's a bit of a no man's land. It's, would you say Kherson is part of Russia? It's not exactly part of Russia, but the Russian flags are flying there, but it's not exactly part of Ukraine. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, they've controlled it, right? Right. And I, I saw a video today, Patrick Lancaster did. By the way, it's oh. strawberry season in Kherson. Did you oh. know that? I did not. Well, it's summertime. That makes sense. Well, also, it's a rich agricultural region. And I understand I... that strawberries and cucumbers are among the best in Europe. And there's, wow. there's a guy on the side of the road selling strawberries. Does wow. that sound like summer or what? It does. I mean, in the middle of a war, it sounds kind of dangerous, though. Well, no, because Russia secured the Kursan area. And so, uh-huh. so, land, so it's safe now, and he can just sell the strawberries. Right. And he was saying it's a bit confusing because no one's in charge of the government there. Whoa. And I can see that. Russia has not come in and said, you're now part of Russia or you're an independent region or whatever. They're going to be part of Russia, I'm convinced, because it's it's related to Crimea. Kherson is an extension of Crimea, in a sense. Uh, so it's going to be part of Russia, I'm convinced. And this guy with his strawberries will be happy. But right now, wow. I don't know what to call it. Well, I'm looking at this Patrick Lancaster footage right now, and he's in Russia's captured territory. It's an amazing contrast to what he's shown previously, because here there's a bunch of young women and people and just everybody standing around looking like they're having some kind of block party, and you would never know there was a war going on. Do you know what they're doing? Since you're not listening, I'll tell you what they're doing. There are people out in in Kherson about to buy SIM cards because they have Russian cellular access now they wow. haven't had it before so people wow. with cell phones will be able to get a new sim card and talk to their friends via 
Wow. Yeah, it looks like they're waiting to see a new Star Wars movie or buy the next iPhone or something. It's like a sunny day. He's just talking to people standing outside. All his other videos, he's wearing a helmet and a bulletproof vest and he's under fire and everything. But now here he's in a city Russia's taken control over. Everything is calm. Yes. And I'll say, you you see the girls he's talking to? Yeah. I thought, I may have mentioned this to Danny, my girlfriend, earlier. Tell me I'm not wrong, and I'm I'm not being, no one's watching this, it's just on radio, but Jason's looking at the footage. If I said, those girls look like they could be any American city, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. They're just like, you know, three young girls, like they literally look like they're waiting for like the Apple store to open to go in to buy the new iPhone. Everybody's just gathered there. And you see the one nerdy girl, the girl with the glasses and the bangs. Yeah, 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 yeah. She looks like she could be a a student at any college in this country. Exactly. Michigan. Absolutely. Yeah. Am I right? Not nerdy. She's studious. She's cute. Well, you... I, to me, nerdy is not an insult. Not a bad thing. You're right. You're right. Point taken. Right. But I'll go with nerdy. She's somewhat <laughs> nerdy looking. But that footage is fantastic. And Patrick, uh, J- John, was just over in Kherson. And we'll talk to oh, him about right. it. Right. Then in the second hour, we have, from the left, our friend Daniel Lazar. And we'll be talking to him about the American way of death. And we'll also be talking to him about this new legislation Canada's putting forward to ban the sale of guns. And we'll see what he says about that. He's got a new article about the many ways capitalism can kill you. So we'll be talking to Daniel about that in the second hour. All Jason, would you mind telling me in a not so nerdy way what the name of the show is? This is the backstory. Now, have you heard about Aiden Aslan? Uh, I you... can't say I have, I don't think. Okay. I heard of him because Gonzalo Lear put out a video this weekend saying he wants to interview Aiden Aslan. And so I watched a, a couple of interviews with him. Aiden Aslan is a Brit. He's from Nottingham. Okay. And he's currently held prisoner by the Russians. Ah, yes, I see. Yeah, right. Because he went over to fight as a mercenary. I I, I won't exactly call it a mercenary. He was doing it on principle, not for the money. Right. Does does that make sense? He fell in love with the Ukrainian girl. And we all know that can lead to trouble, right, Jason? (laughs) Yes, got to be careful, yes. Jason's second wife was Ukrainian, right? First wife, first so, wife. Second wife was Brazil. First, okay. <laughs> Both treacherous territory. <laughs> Jason's bad is like the UN. So his first wife was Ukrainian. But this yeah. guy, Aiden Aslan, married a Ukrainian girl. You know, he's 28 years old. And he went mm-hmm. to fight for Ukraine. And then he was captured in Mariupol a couple weeks ago, and he's a British citizen, and it made, but why, and he has a YouTube channel now. Oh. Russia has allowed him to have a YouTube channel. Wow. So While he's in jail, he has a YouTube channel? Yes, he does. And I know if 
Aiden's lawyer, whoever he is, has to be thrown a conniption fit because Aiden <laughs> is talking. Oh, Aiden is freely admitting that he worked for you, that he fought for Ukraine. Does that make uh, sense? Uh huh. Uh huh. But he did a long interview, a 45 minute interview a couple weeks ago, about a month ago, and he is mm -hmm. regretting that he fought for Ukraine. And if uh -huh. I say he fought for Ukraine, he, he didn't exactly fight for Ukraine. He says he didn't kill anyone. What he did was, at one point, he helped put together a couple of uh, the, the artillery rounds for the Ukrainian military. So you might call him an accessory because those artillery rounds were fired at civilians. But he said... Hmm. He didn't know that going in. He he is. I feel slightly bad for him. Aiden's a guy who bought into all the BS about exactly. Ukraine. Exactly, exactly. Propaganda from the BBC. And he originally fought in Syria. Now he oh. fought on the side of the Kurds, but he oh. fought against ISIS. You see what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And although Maram Susli, Syrian girl, my objection fighting for the Kurds, I agree with the guy who fights against ISIS. Right. ISIS, not good guys. Then he went over Ukraine, and then he quickly realized it was a mistake and hmm. tried to get out. And it's a little confusing, but he ended up on another tour of duty. Then he ended up in Mariupol. And... He, this ties in to John Dugan because yeah. John Mark Dugan, the other place he was, was Mariupol at the Azov Italian headquarters, right? Right, Azovstal. Oh, well, right, no, that building they went into, exactly, right. Right, right. no, no, not Azovstal, not the mines. Right, no, it was the like an office building that was their headquarters, right, exactly. And this guy, Aiden, guarded that building. Aha. Uh -huh. Right. So he was there. And he's wow. being bl blunt. He's saying they were Nazis. Wow. He said, I had no idea. But they were Nazis. So, so well, so wait a minute, Lee. This guy's he's in jail in Russia, or where do they have him? In Russian controlled territory he's, in Ukraine. He's in the DPR. He's in the, the Nazi People's Got Republic. It. Got it. So what are they gonna do to but, him? I mean, there's no government. Is he gonna have a trial? Yeah. He's hoping the British exchange him for a prisoner. Ex hmm. Works with Ukraine to help maybe, he said Medvedchuk, maybe they release Medvedchuk and the Brits get Aiden. But hmm. uh, he is in the DPR now, awaiting a trial. And one of the things he said, he was in, he talked about how poorly treated the soldiers were in Mariupol. And on one hand, I feel bad for the people who were not allowed to surrender by the Zelensky. Right. right? They got tricked. Yes, and he feels that way. Furthermore, oh. talking about the good food in that region, he said the, the Russians have given him very good food. Right. He actually said something few people in prison say. He described what he's eating, 
and he's doing pretty well. So that's another thing interesting. But he said yeah. he also was shocked to find out about the Azov people who were torturing Russian prisoners. We saw and the killing video. Them. We saw yes. the video of them doing that, shooting the guys in the groin and making them do video confessions. I mean, it was insanity. Yes. And the fact he was the guy who interviewed him, asked him, he said, Let me, I just wanted to ask you, are you being put up to this? And because it's a long interview, I got a chance. You get a chance to observe the guy. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. It's 45 yeah, sure. minutes. Body language it, and everything. And there's no cuts or how does it work? There's few cuts, but okay. there's no right. cuts that seem suspicious. Okay. And All right. you get getting to look at the guy for 45 minutes. Right. I'm convinced. And I showed Danny the video today. She's mm -hmm. said too. This guy's either a brilliant actor. Right. And everything he said comports with everything everyone else right. has said. Patrick yes. Lancaster, reporters I've talked to have been over See, there. That's the thing, Lee. It comports with logic. We've got a bunch of people saying here are firsthand witnesses to it. Everything we're hearing from Joe Biden and Vladimir Zelensky does not comport with logic and seems to contradict all the evidence. So as each day passes... As you predicted, more and more evidence that supports what you and I have been discussing all along is coming forward. The truth will come out. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm going to talk to my boss at, at some point about getting Aiden on. I'd like to try to get Aiden on. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Let me tell you why I'm somewhat hesitant. Because mm. we're Sputnik. Right. And that could work against his legal case. Yes, that's Does true. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. That's the with, thing. They with, politicize this so much that you just can't even do what is right and proper. And I'm not saying it would criticize his legal case with the Russians, but he's relying on Great Britain to get him out. Yeah, and if he, he upsets them at all. Right. Right. Because Sputnik is basically abandoned. Yeah. Britain. Well, and as and you said, Lee, any any lawyer would want this guy to not say anything at all. Right. And so I would love to have him on, but I want to talk to my boss to see whether he thinks, yeah. you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to be yeah, ethical yeah, there. Yeah, there's a lot that you got to check out there, yeah. But the video is out there already, and I'm going to propose, if we can't, even if we can't get him, I may try to get permission put this 45 minute interview that's already happened yeah on the show because i think people would be fascinated by it but you can right. find it youtube took down his original interview that's what i'm looking for i don't see it there's only videos of four minutes in length and stuff like that apparently it's on rumble oh, and you I'm can imagine there right now yeah but uh but anyway now before we get to owl killer who's on the line 202 521-1320. The other big headline today is that the Sussman. German investigation, the one prosecution they had in the works against yes. Sussman with yes. the DNC, that yes. verdict came in. He was acquitted. Ridiculous. Yes. But it shows why we've been expecting nothing from the German investigation. Yeah. The trial was so good in that it brought information out. 
So somebody trying to figure out the truth gained more of the truth. But what you didn't gain was the conviction. And we'll talk more about that later. Yeah. 202-521-1320. Killer of owls. You're on. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, with that Durham, uh, that Durham acquittal, it's, all it's doing is it's just going to kill people's faith in the system. And unfortunately, that is the last thing a country that is going through inflation and you know, uh, potential major food shortages, gas shortages. That's the last thing you want because it gives people. Owl killer, owl killer, you're a conspiracy theorist. I have to stop you right there. How dare you say that on a show? How dare you say there's some people of faith in the system? That's a conspiracy <laughs> theory. Where are these people? Owl killer. Oh, all, all over the place. And, you know, it's. It's it's just so crazy that somebody like a Roger Stone could get convicted in the kangaroo trial that he went through. And then you have somebody like Sussman obviously getting acquitted when everybody knows he was guilty of sin. And, you know, from what I saw, there was actually admitted partisan Democrats on the jury. So and I think the judge was appointed by Obama. So it's the Republicans are so weak. They recuse themselves every any chance, like with the Jeff Sessions, I mean, from the beginning. They should have just stuck it to them when Trump took office and said, we're not recusing ourselves from anything. You don't like us, vote us out. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with that the next uh, – we'll deal with it in 2018 and 2020. But um, but the facetious point I was making, Al Killer – and by the way, were you impressed with my acting? It sounded pretty yes. good, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm serious on this point. Who has faith in this system? Do you know anybody who went and going, oh, I'm sure I gained a fair trial? No, I, no, I, I, I totally agree with that. But what I'm, what I'm saying is that the illusion that this is a, you know, we're a Republican, a, you know, a small D democracy, any faith in the system, that stuff is going to get. When you, when you have acquittals like this, the faith that some, something, okay, we're just going to keep going along with the system. It's not perfect, but stuff will get better. It erodes, and I think that's being. I, I that I mean, it goes. It really goes back to. Um, the World Economic Forum, where they state that people will lose faith in um, democracies and that where technocrats will be appointed to run things more efficiently. And I think that one thing that if the Republicans are smart, if the Democrats don't see us on this, the Republicans definitely should. Somebody has to be the party. Of, the new civil rights movement should be you cannot not um, – and like if people's personal opinions cannot affect them in the workplace. I think that sh that the ability to where you, you know, you lose your job or, you know, will seize your bank account because you donate to the wrong group. I think the party that runs on it's going to have to be the Republican Party because Democrats agree with it. But if the Republicans run on. But wait a minute, owl killer. This is not a Democrat Republican thing, because who appointed Durham? It was Republican Bill Barr. This is a criminals versus regular people thing. The reason this happened today is because there is no way on earth that Bill Barr was going to appoint anybody to be in charge of anything that would have revealed anything about Iran-Contra. And you start digging on Hillary and Bill Clinton, and it's going to go right to that. So the appointment of Bill Barr by Donald Trump was the first clue that nothing at all was going to happen. The question is... Was Trump unaware of this or was Trump compelled to go along with this or did he go along with it voluntarily? 
Well, at a certain point, I don't think it matters. And also, I I I think it's time to be realistic. Realistically, we don't have a democracy. We haven't had it for some number of years. Some Correct. might bicker about the exact number. Some would say maybe since November 63. But right. others would say it's more recent, 9-11. But we don't have a democracy. And it's increasingly right. obvious. And I, I think, in a sense, you agree, Al Keller. I don't think you'll argue strenuously. No, not at all. But I, I, I think that the difference is people have the faith that, okay, even though this is corrupt, you know, my gas is not going to be five, six, seven bucks a gallon. You know, I'll still be able to, you know, I'll be able to move ahead of where my parents were. That's everybody's goal or that's the goal for parents is for their kids to be able to move past where they were in life. And when you take that away, there's that's why people were willing to deal with the um, the corruption was because at the end of the day, it's still the best house in the best house right. neighborhood. And when you, right. well, that, that is the danger. Okay. Yeah. You know, and, and I've never been shot. It's one health problem I haven't had, but when Thank people goodness. get shot, I understand they go into shock. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and so there's a time even people, some people get shot in the head. Right. And they're still standing and asking Talking. what happened. Right, right. Right? I think that's mm -hmm. the point our society's at. Yes. Where the, you're right. We've been shot in the head. And what you're talking about, Owl Killer, is they don't want to admit how bad things are. But if they're if you hold up a mirror for them to look at their forehead and they see the hole in the head, that might give them an indication of how bad things are. But great call, Owl Killer. Thanks I so have much. an important non sequitur before we lose Owl Killer. Do you know, Lee, what the icon is at the bottom of Nina Jankowitz's Sophia Strategies webpage? Probably an owl. Is it the, the eyeball in the pyramid? It's an owl. The, the owl makes an appearance everywhere. That, that, that's why... Uh... That's where I took the name from. I figured. Where? Yeah. Yeah. So that's iconography that is popular with secret societies. So right. I hear. They had to watch. I really, <laughs> I really think this is a case of shock. It's a case, and and, but I'm I'm willing to call it. It's over. It's been over for a while, and it's time to be realistic about it, and then say, okay. We're shot in the head. We're we're dead. Well, what's next? So what do we do from here? Yeah. And there's no hope that the Republican Party, and I still think they're way better than Democrats, but there's no hope of the Republican Party save us. Let's go to a short break. Right. Then we'll be back. John Mark Dugan, first time guest, and you're gonna love this. A lot of hard yeah. facts about what's going on in Ukraine on where, Jason? The backstory.
We are back on the back, Troy. And we're on 105.5 FM, AM 1390, in the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C., and the surrounding area. Joining us now, Jason, why don't you do the intro? Joining us now is going to be John Mark Dugan, American expatriate in Moscow. John, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Hello. How are you? Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm quite really well. How are you? Good. Really pleased to have you on the show. Where are you? Are you are you in Moscow now? I am in Moscow in the Zhugli restaurant uh, at my friend uh, Valerie's birthday party. Ooh, nice. Yes. Fantastic. Now, isn't it really late over here? It's almost midnight in Moscow, correct? It's- it's midnight. I, I don't know. The time has gotten away from us, but uh, it's it's eleven. <laughs> <laughs> has there been any vodka involved? Oh, yeah. Has there been any vodka, <laughs> vodka involved? Well, not for me. For them, yes. But uh, I knew I had this interview, so I just had some jiggly uh, beer and uh, a shot of amaretto. As a, <laughs> but you're a professional. You're a true professional. <laughs> Now, what kind of restaurant Precisely is that? Precisely titrated, just for you, Lee. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually a traditional Russian restaurant, and it is the oldest restaurant in Russia. It's uh, what seventy years old. So seventy years old. Well, How do you spell that, John? Huh? How do you spell the name of the restaurant? Zhugli. Uh, um, it it would be like D J U. G U L I Y. I I don't know how you would spell it in uh, English. I'll, I'll look for it. And John, let me ask you a trivial question that's con- completely beneath your pay grade. Do you like Go honey ahead. cake? Do I like what? Honey, honey cake. The Russian well, dessert. Ah, uh, no, I, I'm not really a fan of sweets. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I just don't I don't have a sweet tooth and I like spicy food. So most of the traditional Russian food doesn't actually agree with me. So. So, uh, yeah. Are there any like Mexican restaurants in in Moscow? Oh, you can find any kind of restaurant you want here. Uh, huh. Mexican, Italian, Israeli, um, Korean, Japanese. Any kind of ethnicity that you can think of, there's a restaurant here. Now, we're talking about the Curzon reason because it's strawberry season out there. And did you, you were in Curzon region recently, right? And we came back with a huge box of strawberries. Funny you mentioned that. They're they're very good. Incredible. Huh. Yes, say, say, told you, told you, well, uh, and you but, know, Tatiana used to always say strawberries in America taste like air, and she hated them. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, the fruit here tastes completely different than the fruit in America. Well, For it's industrial instance, agriculture. Well, yeah. Here. So when we were kids, the watermelon used to bite into right. it, and it used to, like, you could feel the sugar crystals on your tongue, right? right? Right, but then right. they started like doing that genetic modification Seed to get rid of the seeds. Right, right. And it lost all its flavor, but not here in Russia, because right. that is illegal here. 
you get incredible fruit, incredible taste. Um, and it's, it's like when we were kids. Lee is booking now, a flight right now. There was recently <laughs> in the Curzon region, uh, there have been some signs of Ukraine launching attacks. I, I, I don't even know what to call them. Zelensky recently came out and admitted the reason for, he doesn't think Ukrainian troops can take Kurzon, but what he thinks is it gives him a better negotiating position if he sits down the table with Russia. When you were in Kurzon, is there any doubt that Russia's got a firm hold on Kurzon? Oh, there's no doubt at all. I mean, you know, generally when we go traveling with the Ministry of Defense, like because because, you know, as um, as journalists that the Ukrainians deem as unfriendly. Right. As in we don't spout their talking points. We are like if if you are independent and objective, then you are unfriendly to the Ukrainian government and they will actually try to bomb you. Right. So a lot of the places we go, we're escorted by the Ministry of Defense um, and they they have troops there to make sure that uh, we don't get attacked by the Ukrainians. And generally speaking, they make us wear vests and they make us wear helmets. But when we were in Kherson, Kherson, we were running around, no vest, no helmets, just diddy bopping in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt almost. And uh, that's because the Ukrainians, they don't have anything here. The most they can do is try to bomb from 30 kilometers away. Well, we saw that on Patrick Lancaster's videos today. The areas controlled by Russia seem to be under control and calm and not having violence. And when you and Patrick are in these areas that are sort of uh, Ukrainian control, you can hear shelling, and there's even direct danger to you, as you're describing. It's, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, well, if you, if you go back and look at my videos, like on the power plant video, I wasn't wearing a vest or a helmet, and that was that's the most desirable part of the uh, Kherson region because it's the hydroelectric plant that, that controls all the electricity for Ukraine. And we were not anywhere near any... Ukrainian soldiers because they couldn't get that far. Now, you're a Marine, so you know something about morale. So I would imagine that the Russian morale is pretty good because they're helping people. They're liberating people who have been under bombing for eight years. And I, 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 so I would guess that when you're a soldier in the military and you're doing something bad, that hurts morale, right? But when you're helping people, does it help morale? It, it does. It does. And, you know, if you know that you're doing the right thing, it helps morale. Um, look, I mean, you know, this is war, uh, right? Some troops are scared, of course. This is a natural thing. But it's a lot easier to deal with when you know that you're on the right side of history, and I think in the future that people are going to understand that Russia was on the right side of history. Um, but a lot of what the mainstream media is pushing, like Russians don't have food or the food's old and expired and the morale is bad. It's a lie. And um, for instance, you see these Russian troops, they, they're like they're they're talking about uh, 
oh, we didn't know we're doing this, blah, blah, blah. Well, you got to remember, these are POWs, right? They're, they're captured. And you always have to remember to take what POWs say with a grain of salt because they're going to say what their captors want them to say or else they're going to get shot in the legs. And the Ukrainians have already proved that they are brutal and ruthless and they don't care about human rights. And they will shoot Russian soldiers in the legs or in the balls or wherever. Yes, and and what I'm saying is it looks like Ukrainian morale, and for reasons we just said, partially they're doing bad stuff, is low. And have you heard about mass surrenders on the Ukrainian side in number of cities? Have you heard any direct stories about that, of Ukrainians surrendering in large numbers on the battlefield? I'm not talking about places like Mariupol after weeks. Have you heard much about surrenders, John? Wait, did you lose, John? John? Well, it's okay. Maybe vodka's involved. No, <laughs> no, John will come back in a second. Signal. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll get him back. But I'm curious about that. Because I've been hearing about big surrender numbers, and I really think things are about to collapse for yeah. the Ukrainian side in a big way, mm-hmm. in a massive way, yeah. politically, militarily. And I, I'm wondering what Zelensky's future is. I don't think Zelensky has much of a future because the thing Sky Aiden was saying the troops, the Ukrainian troops, are being treated as expendable. Right. And all troops realize they are expendable to some extent. But treating them like that and telling them not to surrender, I think, is very bad for morale. Yeah. I think that's why I was saying massive surrender. Uh, Lee, when- I, would, I would take it one step further and say every single civilian in Ukraine is being treated as expendable because all they want to do is funnel weapons in there, funnel money through there, defy Russia. And I mean, this is a fool's errand. Even even uh, Kissinger says it's time to surrender, cede the land and sit down at the table. And I think at this point, this is just conjecture on my part. Obviously, I don't know anything. I have no inside information. But I think Russia is going to keep going until they've taken at least Odessa. I don't think Russia has any sign of slowing down their advance because they know they have to handle this problem with Ukraine once and for all. They can't have Ukraine still out there. And the demilitarization and denazification is going right. pretty well yeah. in places like, you know, places like Mariupol, but yeah. they can't allow any. Uh, they can't allow, for instance, any Black Sea access. Russia has to make sure Ukraine has no access to the sea mm-hmm. because that represents a military threat to Russian forces. And I think the other thing that that Russia's done is they've shown consistently, like in Mariupol, they didn't send troops into Avastol, the mines, 
to protect Russian troops. And it took longer than if they just gone in guns blazing. By the mm. way, did you hear about the bodies that were found in Avisol? I did not. The Ministry of Defense in Avisol, they were looking for bodies. And apparently they found about 150 bodies uh-huh. that had been packed into a truck with no refrigeration or anything. So hey. imagine that smell. Yeah. Gruesome. But, but more than that, when they started pulling the bodies out, they found three mines under the bodies. Oh, this is what Russia's claiming. Is that to well, kill whoever is like, why are those mines there? The mines were there, the Ministry of Defense concluded, to help launch a false flag attack against the corpses. In other words, huh. they were going to claim Russia just destroyed the bodies. Got it. In other words, wow. showing Ukrainian people, here's how much Russia hates you. Wow. They decimated the body so they can't be identified. Lee, do you know what and, I think is going on here? Did, did you ever hear this story about how when Israel captured a MiG jet and they studied it and the, the most shocking thing they found about it was that the, the materials being used, whereas the United States was using the most sophisticated aerospace materials and construction techniques and whatever – the Russian jet had been built with the cheapest materials and like, you know, it's done for so much less money, but still has competitive capability when compared to an American jet. And it's almost an analogy for the entire Russian military versus the American military, because they have so much less to work with. They have to be efficient. And I think what we're seeing is Russia doing exactly what they said they're going to do, demilitarize, denazify Ukraine. There's no reason to believe that they've wavered from that that it's been going anything other than according to plan. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think we're going to find out that this Russian story about the bodies being found and mine yeah. mm. will come to pass. Russia, mm. I don't think, would. Russia has not done a lot of making stuff up. Ukraine, on the other hand, has done a lot of straight making stuff up. Russia may have exaggerated or whatever. I, I don't even have too many instances of that. But Ukraine makes stuff up, and then they're forced to retract it. Snake Island, the Ghost of Kiev. The Ghost of Kiev, they were all in on that until one day they admitted, no, it was all made up. You follow me? So Ukraine can't sustain their lies. And the truth is on Russia's side. But... Will the media report it? That's a big question. Will the American or British media report it? And I'm going to say, I think they are going to start. They're already, we're seeing that already. The British media is already admitting things are not going well for Russia. And as you mentioned, Henry Kissinger recently said stuff. The other big headline over the weekend, there was some talk that they were going to send long-range missiles, the U.S. was going to send long-range missiles to Ukraine. But then Biden announced the next day, we're not going to send the long-range missiles. They were going to send long-range missiles to Ukraine that could hit Russia. You follow me? Yeah. And, And then the U.S. realized 
that's probably a bad move. And Russia told them that would be a bad move. They said, if missiles were used to launch against Russian cities, we would strike the command centers. And then they said, and not all the command centers are in Ukraine. So if you heard about any phone calls world leaders have made, like Macron and Schultz from France to Germany, respectively, they had a call with Putin in the past few days. You heard about that? Can Jason? you hear us? Uh, okay. Yeah, Lee. Yeah, Lee. I hear you. Uh, okay, Lee, can John, you hear us? Yeah, John, welcome back. Yeah. We're back with John, yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah, so thank, thanks for coming back. Uh, I, uh, what, sorry, what, uh, I don't what, know what happened. But no, it's okay. It's a miracle. Technologically, we can talk. Sure, someone at a restaurant yeah. in Russia. So we, I won't <laughs> I, complain. I know, right? right. <laughs> it's like complaining that microwave food is too slow. This took 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. What? Stop complaining. Yeah. So, so, John, what's been your experience? Have you heard about firsthand any examples of mass surrenders by Ukrainian troops? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there were over 2,000 Ukrainian troops that uh, surrendered out of Azovstal within the last uh, within the last week. So, yeah. At first, they released uh, their wounded, and then uh, they all came out. And what I've heard is a lot of Ukrainian troops feel they're being treated like they're expendable. They're being told. They're being forced to basically, they're told by Ukraine, by the leaders, keep fighting. You can't surrender. And that That's doesn't true. go over well with troops, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you know, there, there's a time to surrender and a time not to surrender. But, but uh, you know, look, the, the Ukrainians, they know what's going on in uh, the Donbass, and they know, you know, it's not, I guess you would say kosher. Uh, and Jason, sorry for appropriating uh, <laughs> no, <that's laughs> your <fine>. culture. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, um, but they do, they know what they're doing there is wrong. I mean, they've been bombing the hell out of the Donbass for the last uh, eight years. Yeah. You know, they've killed 14,000 people there. So, um, and, and I got to tell you, look, I got a call. I got a call from my friend Tatiana, okay? Tatiana, she's pro-Russian, but she's from Ukraine. And she calls me up and she said, John, I've had a tragedy. I need your help. And I said, yeah, sure. What's up? And she says, my brother got killed and I need to figure out how to get his body from Mariupol to uh, – to uh, Lviv, because that's where her family's from, Lviv. And I was like, uh, okay. I was like, well, why don't you just bring him to Russia? And she's like, well, I can't because of politics. And I realized that he was probably fighting for the Ukrainian army. And it turns out I was right. He was actually in Azovstal fighting, right? And her, so her brother died being forced to fight for the Ukrainians, and she knew it was wrong. So, you know, it, it, it just, it kind of goes to, it, it goes to show people that, you know, when the people in Mariupol 
when their family gets killed and they say that Russia is right. And when when the people fighting for Ukraine are, are killed and their sisters say, well, he was fighting for the wrong side. Um, you, you know that there's something wrong. And but what's even more interesting about this story is when I called my friends uh, in the Donetsk Republic um, government, right, that I had been helping get um, medicine to, you know what their reaction was? It, it was one of respect. And it was, you know what, yeah, we're going to help him get home to his family because every soldier, no matter who they are, no matter what they're fighting for, deserves respect. So when I hear about the treatment of the POWs on the Russian side, I know that um, I have a good feeling they're being treated very well. Now, now, because this is your first time on the show, and we're very proud to have you and, and honored, why don't you tell your origin story? Why don't you tell us, you, you were deputy sheriff, tell us how you got from there to here. You know, maybe not specifically, Russia, but covering news events as opposed to arresting criminals. How'd you get, can you do a five minute version of that story? Yeah, sure. I, I was a cop in America exposing criminal activity in the American government. Um, after I were, uh, after I posted uh, 19 recordings of dirty cops admitting to a flurry of crimes, uh, the FBI raided my home. And I was forced to flee the country and ask for political asylum in Russia. Um, and uh, I've been pretty inactive as far as uh, any kind of politics, but I did start a YouTube channel. And um, once this broke out, a lot of my subscribers were saying, John, what's the truth? What's going on? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I see what the Western media re reporting, and I don't think it's right. I see what the... Russian media is reporting, but I don't really speak Russian, so I don't know if it's right or not. I'll go myself and find out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. And so I did. I And I've been five times now. And um, so I give a firsthand account on my channel of uh, what I believe is uh, what's actually happening on the ground. I interview people there, the locals. Um, and talk to them and get their point of view. Um, because I don't look, I, I don't want to trust any government. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to rely on what I hear and what I see and then bring that back to the people that are on my channel and, uh, let them make their own decision because at the end of the day, it's, it, it, it shouldn't be any one person trying to force information down somebody's throat. They should prevent present a side of the story the people should be free to look at the other side and then weigh for themselves what they feel is correct. Right. Now, and I've said it before, I was a professional journalist before. I was the lead investigative reporter at Breitbart News. And I also worked for Huffington Post before that. And I've had the most freedom professionally I've ever had working for Sputnik. I've had the best experience. And frankly, if you told me 10 years ago, the the most freedom we all ever have is working for Russian-funded media. I would have been shocked. But You wouldn't have believed it. 
Right. I, yeah. I, I would you not. Know, I, I, you know, everybody's like, oh, try saying something bad about Putin. But I'm like, okay, well, have you read the Moscow Times? You know? I mean, <laughs> that's like that's like the most liberal um, uh, rag that there is. And you know what? N- nothing happens. Um, I, I know people that uh, don't like Putin. Now, it's a very small percentage of the people here. And people think that his popularity is artificially inflated, but it's not. The people here are genuinely, they like the guy because he's a good leader. Um, but there are some people that don't. And no, nobody silences them. Nobody, nobody pressures them to, to, to stop any negative reporting. So, yeah, I, I, would, I would believe you now if you told me that. Um, but you're probably right. I wouldn't have believed it uh, 10 years ago. No, and the fact that you had to go to Russia because of the problems you were having in the United States with law enforcement— Let's point that out with law enforcement and and you know, I think that says something. And have you found living in Russia? Do the people it seems to me it's more there's a, a very American sense of independence, but in America, it's only a sense we have. And it seems yeah. like there's well, more genuine independence in Russia. What do you what do you think of that, John? Well, I'm going to tell you something, and you're going to be shocked. Today I got spit on, but it wasn't by a Russian. I was doing a live stream and walking along, talking about the sanctions of America and uh, the European Union and how it's backfiring. And some British guy walked up to me and said, hey, where are you from? And I said, uh... Uh, Palm Beach County, Florida. And he spit on me and he's like, you're a traitor. Excuse my language. I, I'm sorry. But uh, that's yeah, what you he have, said. You have to watch that because we have the FCC rejecting yeah. us, John. Uh, my, my bad, my bad. And um, but uh, that's what he said. Dude, a Russian person would never, ever do that. They might not like your position, right? But they're very respectful, and they would never spit on you. This was a British guy. That's terrible. Right? And, um, yeah, he's uh, very lucky that— uh, Yeah, you well, got to stay kind of out of trouble there. So, like, punching someone for spitting on you might not be a fair response. Yeah, yeah, well, it was very close. It was very close. That's terrible. Well, John, we're out of time. Completely honored to have you with us, John. And hopefully you can get you again sometime. Great conversation. Thanks for sharing what you're dealing with and seeing on the ground in Ukraine. John Mark Dugan, thanks so much. Asvidanya. Hey, thanks, guys. Goodbye. Coming up, more conversation with Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth. And we'll be talking, among other things, about Justin Trudeau and guns on the backstory.
Live from the Empire of Lies, a sanctuary for free speech and good discussion in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. This is the backstory. I'm Lee Stranahan, and our guest co-host today on Truth Tuesday is Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth. Great conversation with John. Hey, Jason? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yes, very affable guys. Just he he is, and you know I've known him for about four years. I first came in contact with him. Like I said, he just breezed over this, but he had created a website that was kind of like WikiLeaks, and that you could upload things through, you know, Tor or whatever it is that's anonymous. And uh, our first interview, he spoke about an individual who contacted him, who he believed was Seth Rich. Really. Yeah, pretty interesting. It's interesting. We'll talk more about mm-hmm. uh, guests you've had in one second because we want to talk about David Ike. Okay. A guy who's been at Jason's apartment, right, Jason? Yeah. Yep. Former footballer and now constantly attached because severity theorists, but mm. a hidden historian. I'm a big fan of David Ike, and we'll talk to you about that in a second. Coming up this hour, Daniel Czar on The Backstory. So tell us about your experience with David Icke. Why he was in your apartment, Jason? Well, obviously, I've known about his work for a long, long time. And he had a movie that he released maybe three or four years ago. And he came to New York. They had the uh, premiere over at the Directors Guild on 57th Street, which I don't know if you've been in there, Lee, but they used to do 3D events and stuff. I've given lectures over there. It's a great screening space. And I approached him there and spoke to him and said, hey, how long are you in New York? Can we do an interview? And he and his son, Jamie, came over here and did an interview and spoke about, you know, all the types of things that David Icke likes to speak about. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big fan of David Icke. He did mm-hmm. the best presentation about the roundtable groups, the Triglottic mm-hmm. Commission, Council on Foreign Relations, the British group. He did the best presentation I'd ever seen on the roundtable groups. It was energetic, it was concise, and it was factual. Mm-hmm. And he is constantly attacked as a conspiracy theorist. And he's an OG conspiracy theorist, like Alex Jones. Yeah, oh, even before. Yeah, he's the granddaddy of it all, pretty much. And I noticed one thing about him. Have you ever seen the interview that set him on the controversial? It's when he started getting attacked by the media. He did an interview. It's famous for the track suit he's wearing. He's a former football player. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen the one where the the host said to him, do you say you're the son of God? And he's accused of saying he's the son of God. Did you see that interview? I did. I don't remember the specifics of it, but I am aware of the variety of ways that he's attacked. Well, if someone says he's the son of God, that's a different statement right. than I'm we're, a, all, we're all children right. of God. Right, right. And he made it clear. Every time the interview asked me, I said, no, I said, we're all children of God. 
Right. He did not. But the interviewer kept saying, but you're saying you're the son of God. And he was trying to make him out to be, as they say in, in Great Britain, a nutter. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> and when it's that blatant, when they misrepresent his words in order to attack him, if yeah. you don't agree that we're all children of God, fine, come on, say that. But if, if you think only one person can say that, and it's Jesus Christ, Okay, fine. Say that. I don't agree we're all children of God. But I think it was very clear what he was saying. And what I noticed is the way, and whenever they, they talk about David Icke, they only show the interviewer asking him, are you saying you're the son of God? And they don't show his complete answer, Ike's. Right. Have you noticed that? Right. Uh, I mean, again, I don't remember that. I do remember the interview, but not this specific segment of it. But certainly they're doing this kind of stuff all the time, Lee. Yes. And again, it's been going on with David Icke for a lot longer than it's been going on for some people. And I say he's OG. But the fact is he knows his history. Mm -hmm. It's inarguable that he knows his yep. history. And in that sense... I'm a big, huge David Icke fan. And I also mm -hmm. like the fact, actually, that he combines it. What I'd ask him, if I could interview David Icke, is I would ask him, I hear a lot of Alan Watts influence in David Icke. David Icke seems to me to be very influenced by Alan Watts, the Zen Buddhist uh -huh. philosopher, British Zen Buddhist philosopher. And I'd want to ask him, Am I hearing something that's not there, or is it just coincidental? But he makes a lot of arguments that seem to me di directly from Alan Watts' writing. Huh. For instance, that statement, a lot of his statements about spirituality. And I think you can't deal with some of this stuff unless you deal with the spiritual aspect. And I like the fact that David Icke doesn't shy away from that. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And, and, you know, they have to pull out these tiny little, like yours. David Icke is so prolific, as you've been saying this whole time. He's been around forever. He's written tons of books, done so many lectures, so many hours of video. And they're going in and they're grabbing like, you know, one 12-second statement from one thing that he said and manipulating that to make it sound bad skipping over all the hundreds of accurate things that he's said that are clear and concise. It's, you know, obviously social engineering against him. Right. And, and I also like the fact, because he said something, I watched an interview with him recently. He said an important factor, and this reminded me of Andrew Breitbart. Andrew Breitbart, my friend, did not care what people thought about him. That was one thing we picked up from Andrew. If he was right, he knew it was right. And Ike's the same way. He doesn't care yeah. people's incorrect views about him. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it's not a popularity you, contest. It's about facts. And guaranteed, if you talk about some stuff that Ike or I or you, Jason, you, you're not going to have everyone like you. Perhaps your right. nose. Yes. 
but you can't take that too into account. You have to try to be decent to people, but tell the truth. And I've begun getting less patient with people. I've begun blocking people on Twitter. I'm I'm tired of people wasting my time because Jason Neurom over this. There are people out there who's and, and in some cases they may be paid operatives. Yeah. Who would love to have you waste your time, right? Well, I was going to say exactly that, Lee. The thing is, I think that the social engineering is so prolific and so persistent and so many people doing it that, you know, again, what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter, I think is more just shaking the tree to see what falls out. And it's a lot of bad apples falling out. I think the majority of Twitter are fake accounts, manipulated accounts, bot accounts, whatever we want to call them, but stuff that is there to manipulate people's response to what you put out, to mitigate the effectiveness of information that you put out, to amplify whatever lies, you know, in this case, Zelensky, and we've been talking a lot about Nina Jankowitz, all of these people, you know, they're the ones that we see. But what you're talking about, you know, anonymous Twitter handles, when Ted Cruz was questioning Jack Dorsey in uh, the Senate there, he said, Ted Cruz said he felt that people should not be allowed to operate through pseudonyms and operate anonymously on Twitter. And Jack Dorsey had such an uh, immediate and almost violent response. It was, it was undeniable to me how clear, it was so adamantly against that. And that was suspicious to me. Yeah. Now, I, we're going to, I see Tarif on the line. We'll hit Tarif in one second. After we take Tarif's call, something major broke this weekend. And I've been talking for a while. Anyone's been following the show for years. And this show has been such a great forum because I've been able to dig in stories week after week. You've heard of Alexander Chalupa. Yeah. Alexander Chalupa is a Democratic operative. Worked for the DNC. She was originally in the Clinton White House. And she interfered in the 2016 election by working with the government of Ukraine. And I've been talking about that for years. Right, Jason, you've heard me. Yeah. So Larry Johnson, who's been a guest on the show, and you know Larry. You know Larry too, right, Jason? Yep. Mm -hmm. Larry did an interview with Vanessa Bealey. And one, oh, yeah. no, for, forgive me, with Eva. Uh oh, Eva Not Bartlett. Vanessa. Yeah. Eva Bartlett, forgive me. But Eva Bartlett, and we're going to play the clip after we talk to Sharif. He's saying that he has proof. And I called Larry up over the weekend, and I, sp I confirmed it with Larry that, uh, that Alexander Chalupa, the Democratic operative, brought members of Azov over from Ukraine for January 6th. Now, ponder that, Jason. A Democratic operative brought Nazis over for January 6th. That will mean January 6th was a setup, clearly. Right? Well, it was a foreign invasion by Ukrainian operatives. I mean, it's an act of war by Ukraine. It's absurd. It's insane. It's unheard of. I mean. 
Lee, and I they, know they were flown over. Happened. They were flown over by Democratic operative. My God. Right. She should so, be in prison for treason. Right, but she she won't be because Durham lost. Look. Right. What I can't guarantee anybody is that she'll be brought to justice. You see what I'm saying, Jason? I can't right. predict she will that. Not. I. I don't have any control over that. If I was a betting man, I'd bet against her being brought to justice. But what right. I can guarantee is that the story will come out. Yeah. Right? The truth will come mm -hmm. out about this. And mm -hmm. then whether anybody does anything about it or not, they'll have to do it despite all the evidence against her. And I'll play the clip afterwards, but let's go to the calls. 202-521-1320. Tarif, what's on your mind? Thanks for waiting. Thank you. Um, thank you all for taking my call. I have two comments. My first, I first like to say free doing the science. Um, I want to talk about the deep state, you know, the, the corrupt bureaucrats, especially when I'm going through and doing the science. I'm making it somewhat personal, but not too personal, but geopolitically. You got four levels of information, right? One, two, three, four levels. The third and fourth level is very sensitive right now when i call in the radio shows and i discuss problems i'm dealing with the first level and the second level and i did talk some smack last week talking about if i ever come across information on kamala harris or anybody else i will release it but I, the reason why i think those information have came out about austin and blinken newland and kamala harris is because it's a you know just just like the deep state escalate against people like julian signs and me and other whistleblowers like Snowden and everybody else. On the other side of the table, they have certain information that can come out to hit them, hit back at them. I'm gonna put for an example. Just say, okay, something happened to Julian Science and me and me. Well, financially, I can't pay my bills anymore, or I'll get thrown in the mental institution, or I wind up dying, or or prison, or something happened to me or Julian Science. I'm pretty sure. The third and fourth level of information will come out on Austin, Kamala Harris, Blinken, things of that nature. I'm going to continue to call into this show and discuss about certain levels on the first and second levels of information, all right? Because I have yet to receive any other information about when I search the web I'm talking about. I'm not like I'm getting information directly, but when I search the web, I have yet to come across anything on the web about Kamala Harris or Austin, all right? But I like to talk about geopolitics. So if something happens to me where I can't pay bills, I lose the internet, I you know, I go completely insane, or something happened to Julian Science, you go completely insane. I'm pretty sure that third and fourth information will come out either from me or somebody else that might call into a show here or somewhere else, and you might see one or two people in the um Biden administration political career destroyed, the DNC political career destroyed. We got election year deep state. So the thing is this, five months to the elections, all right? Hey, I'm thinking that maybe something might happen, like a September 11 might also work in the um, DNC favor. Hopefully it won't. Hopefully no D um, September 11 act will happen, and we can make it to the um, that um, uh, that good day of the election where we vote our conscience. But if, hopefully... No more mass shootings, no more, uh, what you call that, September 11th, that always 
always helps out the surveillance state, always help out the DNC. We got to stop things like that. So if something happened to me financially, where I can't get access to the internet or something else, then maybe I might get a hold of some on the internet when I do my searches, some third and fourth level um, um, information. You know what I'm saying? So it's the red lines, escalation on both sides with the red lines. My second comment is this. Um, Russia is investigating a raid cross in Maripool. It seemed like they had documentation on ch- children, healthy children organs, and they're trying to find out what's going on with that. If some type of organ smuggling through the Red Cross was going on. So yeah, I'm gonna continue to call every single day and talk about one and two levels of information. But if something happens to me, serious, financially or something else, I'm pretty sure I get the third and fourth information or somebody else will get it. Because they're gonna have that's gonna drive the print home. Just don't cross that ring line. You know what I'm saying? Just keep it above board. Just stay political. Yes, you know. You know, yeah. Thank you, Lee, for taking my call. Well, as always, appreciate Thanks. that call, Eve. And you keep on keeping on. And so now I want to, and, and by the way, we'll get to break right after this. I want to play the clip. This is Larry Johnson talking to Eva Bartlett. And all this is, I want to point out, this is a tease. We're digging into the story. And when I called Larry, I told him that I thought whoever he confirmed for me that he's got the information. And uh-huh. I said he needs to look into Brett Kimberlin. Oh, he yeah. was not familiar with Brett Kimberlin. Oh, wow. But Brett Kimberlin is a close associate of Alexander Chalupas. And Brett's the kind of person who often, he's the guy who buys the airline tickets. Hmm. In some cases, like this guy, Yanni. Huh. Brett bought the airline tickets. And Brett... Kimberlin, we'll talk about him more, but we're going to keep digging at this story. And to amplify what Tarif was saying, this also goes to the point about you can't worry about what people think about you, like David Icke said, but also it's not just people. Until they stop me, they haven't stopped me. So I'm going to use the form I have to bring out information, right? I'm going to keep digging this story and going deep on this and getting the information out there. And luckily, because it's out through Sputnik, it's safe in a place, the Sputnik website, that they can't take down. In other words, all the the audio of this show, all the audio of this show is on a hard drive at Sputnik. That's great. Right. So I'm going to keep bringing the truth. Let's hear Larry Johnson. Play the clip. Coming out in, in, in the next few weeks, uh, for example, some of the uh, some of the members of the Azov Battalion, for example, they were present in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. They were flown here by Alexandra Chalupa and uh, they were brought in specifically to help provoke and incite the crowd. Uh, the people I'm familiar with, they've got the they've got the flight, they've got the flight information, the hotel information. So it's not made up. So, yeah. the, the, and when you talk, try to explain to people that 
a lot of times calling someone a Nazi is a pejorative without actually explaining what it entails. But in this case, these guys are bona fide Nazis in the sense they, they wear the symbols. So there we go. There's Larry Johnson. And we're going to keep talking about that story and digging deeper on it. Yeah. But I confirm with Larry yeah. that he's got the goods. Wow. So what do you think, Jason? Well, Larry is a solid guy. He's another person who I've interviewed at his house. And uh, I like Larry and I respect his insights. And I'm very interested in hearing more about that. I don't doubt it either. I saw people identifying through photos individuals who were president uh, who were present in Maidan Square and also on January 6th. And I was in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I stood on the sidewalk outside the Capitol. I didn't enter the building, but there were these waves of people who were walking in. And, you know, <clears throat> it's interestingly, I've told you that I have persistent, you know, what most people would consider stalkers. I think these individuals have a more sinister purpose, but that four and uh, it's almost five hours in length, the video that I made on the January 6th, I just basically went to Washington, D.C., turned on the video camera and let it run pretty much all day giving a lot of documentation of the event, that was just removed from YouTube yet again by this persistent stalker who, I was going to ask you, what, if any, connections does Alexandra Chalupa have to the Brookings Institution? Well, I, I don't know, but a lot of people she's dealing with, she's in the, the group that put the Russiagate. So right. I would draw a line indirectly, certainly it's strobed halibut, but it's, it's a dotted no, line. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I think, there are, I think there are, yeah, hidden connections and they, you know, there's things going on, intercommunications and distribution of tasks and things like that so that these things seem to occur organically, but I don't believe that that's what's happening. And I'll, I'll say one more thing before we get to Brave. Uh, there's a famous quote from Steve Martin, the comedian. And mm -hmm. people are coming up to Steve because he's famous. And they say, how do I get famous? How do I succeed in show business? And for years, his answer was, be so good, they can't possibly ignore you. Mm -hmm. And I always like that answer. Because yeah. it puts the focus on where it should be. You yeah. know, be very good at your craft. And then... Let the fame come. And I think yeah. the way to deal with stories is I don't assume. In fact, I assume not. I assume the world is against reporting on a story with Alexandra Jalupa. It won't make ABC, NBC, PBS, CNN, right? It won't make None that. Of that. No. It should be. But you can present the information in such a clear form that it becomes ridiculous for people to argue against it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to continue to try to present that information. Let's go to 2521 1320. Go ahead, Brave. Hey, what's going on, guys? I, um, first, I want to say uh, I really appreciate the, the information that's um, shared through callers like uh, Our Killer, uh, Tarif, uh, Ingrid, and, and, and Malik. Um, Malik, who I think 
I've said before, and I'll continue to say, Lee, you guys really should have him on. I've had some really interesting uh, phone calls with Malik, just digging into his his uh, his his backstory and uh, no pun intended, um, and some of the life experience he has um, he has uh, acquired. Uh, you you it would be uh, great for you guys to really interview him and get into some of that. Um, that that aside, I wanted to bring raise the point. Yeah, I, I agree with that. By the way, Brave, go ahead. Uh, Right, Roger. That I, I wanted to bring up. Um, I wanted to bring it to the point of uh, of the Davos crowd and the World Economic Forum and the amount of coverage I feel like should be going to them. That an independent media that I don't seem to see. I know it gets mentioned here on on this on this station on on this um, particular show specifically, and other few other places like, for instance, uh, Jackson Hinkle. He actually posted a uh, image, a list showing the list of our, uh, rep- our our state representatives, our congressmen and senators who were special guests there at at the Davos, you know, as well as um, as well as news contributors, not not there to cover, but guests. That, that says a lot. Um, I, w- I would also like to bring up the fact that um, what's, what's her name? Uh, Ursula von der Leyen. She she was. Well, well, everybody's talked about uh, Kissinger and his point about um, Ukraine having to uh, at some point compromise. But I'm not hearing many people talk about like uh, uh, Ursula and what she was saying and how she was saying despite. The hardships that are going on, and yes, there, yes, the hardships will be harder for our people. We're going to continue to push on with our green agenda. Like they're literally saying it, and I, I don't understand why, um, why so many, especially in independent media, who you think would be the main voices covering it, pretend like this um, World Economic Forum group, the Davos group, um, this, this Great Reset is something to be taken lightly because our politicians. They, they they don't write policy. They they don't create policy. It's very few that actually put forth policy and come up with policy. Their their lobbyists, their their handlers are the one that ones that do. And these forces are the people that are at Davos. These are the billionaires, the the CEOs, the the, the these corporations who who have so much control over our lives vis a vis our 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 representatives, right, and our politics. And people take pretend like it's a joke when it's not a joke. You have this guy. Um, I, I tried to call to uh, fault lines earlier and bring this up. Um, I think his name is Yuval, Yuval Noah um, Harari. He wrote a book called Off the, uh, Oh yeah, called Sapiens. Yeah, this guy. He he was out. This is last week too. And Klaus Schwab. He has the ear of Klaus Schwab. Right. This guy is out saying that we he, are. He's like the junior Klaus Schwab. He's crazy. That guy. Yes. Yes, yes. This guy, this guy is out uh, preaching a message that the working class, people, the poor, the non-rich, basically, the non-elite, are you. He refers to us as useless people, and and they, and they really show their intentions, and they're not like hiding it. It's not in code. You can tell by the actions they're taking. You can tell by where our economy is, and the questions that we keep asking, and 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 the, and the idea that we keep saying, oh, they're incompetent. That's not why they're making. That's why they're making these dumb choices and crashing the economy. That's ridiculous to take that perspective, in my in my opinion, because they are showing you what they are doing. They are saying out loud, one, they don't need our labor anymore, right? And two, they don't need us, right? So I, I just I feel like there's just so much more attention that should be cast on these people, especially when you have when you have them out loud saying that we are pushing forward with our green agenda and these people are useless and we don't need their their labor. That's alarming. And I would love to get you guys' take on that. Wait, I think you're exactly right. Good, good point, Brad. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I think you're exactly right. It's what we have. And Lee, we were talking about this earlier. This is no longer a democracy. It is a technocratic uh, oligarchy or autocracy or something where there's like a secret Politburo controlling an obviously incompetent figurehead president of the United States who is proceeding, as you said, not not with stupid plans, but deliberately self-destructive plans. I mean, I can't say what they intend to do, like this whole notion of sending long-range missiles to Ukraine that could hit cities in Russia and start, uh, you know, if Ukraine were to start attacking civilian sites in Russia, I think that Moscow would rightly devastate everything and anything. And when they say control centers that aren't in Ukraine, they're talking about Washington, D.C. Yeah, good, good point. Let's go to a short break, and then we'll come back and talk to Daniel Zar about the American way of death. That's all coming up on The Backstory. Backstory 105.5 FM AM 1380. We're joined now by Daniel Czar, the great writer and author. You can find his stuff over at weeklyworker.co.uk. Is that right, Daniel? That is correct. It, the the you know the long UK. Got I always think I'm screwing it up. Does that make sense? No, it's I like dot dot, UK. dot com dot org. Easy. But .co.uk, correct? Correct. So, uh, Daniel, I saw you had an article over there on the American way of death. And that relates to some of the issues that we're dealing with now. For, for instance, the gun issues. Justin Trudeau announced last night he's essentially introducing legislation to ban handguns. But you talked about what what's what what was your you cited a lot of statistics there about a lot, lot of ways Americans die, uh, not just gun, not just gun related deaths, and you know there there so someone made the point today they were talking about one thing that's not talked about we talk about the murder rates with guns they never talk about the suicide rates with guns. They never bring up the uh, likelihood of killing yourself with a gun as it comes up. But you were also talking about issues like our medical system and the food that we eat. What was the point you were making there, Daniel, about the American way of death? Well, just like, you know, I mean, I mean, mortality, this is the, this is the most basic health, you know, index and, uh, and, in the U.S., it's going way down. I mean, uh, uh, longevity, life expectancy peaked around 2014. Uh, it kind of leveled off, dipped in the, a, a little bit in the years, uh, the following years, uh, but then plunged as a result of COVID. So it's down, I think, as 1.6 or 1.8 years. So Americans are, are having, you know, that many years lopped off their life. Uh, and it's due to a, there are a wide variety of factors that are kicking in. 
Uh, I mean, highway fatalities are at record levels. Gun deaths, including suicide and, and police shootings, are at a, uh, are rising dramatically. Uh, um, and drug overdoses are rising at 15% per year due to the fentanyl um, uh, epidemic. So, so Americans are, are killing themselves, and that's showing up in the, uh, in the life expectancy estimates. So the question is why? And why is this happening here? Uh, and, and to me, it seems to be indicative of, of a broader social and political breakdown. I mean, I mean no other country is seeing this. Uh, no other country is seeing life expectancy, uh, you know, dip by 1.6 or 1.8 years. Um, and I was, I was looking at the World Bank dat- data, and that's true across the entire advanced industrial world. Uh, yet in the U.S., it is, it's happening. Uh, and uh, the Americans are, are losing, you know, are perishing earlier. That's a very bad thing. Now, it must have been depressing to look up all because the article, and you can find it over again, wikiworker.co.uk. And the article must have been depressing bit of research because you do have a lot of stats in there. How was it going through all these stats? Did anything surprise you when you're researching the lower life expectancy for Americans? Well, one thing, the only thing that really surprised me was the, uh, well, the highway figures. Uh, uh, the, the, the highway fatalities are, are, are rising dramatically, according to every index, uh, according to per population, per vehicle, miles, traveled, et cetera. Um, and the reason is that cheap gasoline is enabling a uh, shift to SUVs. And SUVs are very big. Uh, and they don't pose a threat to the driver or passengers. They throw a they they pose a threat to the other driver and the other passengers. So you know, so there's like a road race. If you know, the uh, uh, I think SUVs are now two thirds of the uh, of the uh, of the auto market. And if you're in that one third that is not driving an SUV, your chance of getting killed, uh, you know, increases substantially. Uh, and and what kind of government allows that? I mean, what kind of government doesn't step in and say, "Hey, you know, thousands of people are dying unnecessarily." I mean, shouldn't we stop it? Shouldn't we do something? But nothing is done. The same thing, you know, with the uh, with the, with, with guns, Uvalde. I mean, the the amazing thing about Uvalde is like, you know, it's like not only the shooting itself and the and the incredible police response. But the fact that nobody has any idea of what to do. In fact, everyone agrees that nothing can be done. So, so nine and 10 and 11-year-old kids have got to sit there in class and know when their moment comes, they've got to go gracefully because that's what, the, that's what their government expects of them. Uh, this is crazy. Did you look now, with regard to the highway Jason, stuff? Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Uh, I'll just heard you. Yeah. Just uh, with regard to the highway stuff, did you look at any statistics? You know, Elon Musk is saying how self-driving cars will eventually become statistically much safer than cars driven by humans. Have you looked at that? Does that have any have not, merit? 
the, uh, the, the electric car market is still a very tiny uh, portion. Well, not electric, but self-driving, I'm saying. Cars that will, through artificial intelligence, you know, computers that will drive the cars rather than humans that Musk seems to think will be less prone to accidents eventually. I, I, I really have no idea. What do you think? I mean, I, I, mean, I think it strikes me as really far-fetched, and I know there have been a lot of— I think he's right. —self-driving cars. Well, is well, that the solution? Put everybody in a self-driving uh, car? Meanwhile— uh, It might be. It might be. Who knows? I mean, at one point, the notion of a vehicle that would be powered and where's the horse? You know, people would have thought that was crazy. But I think uh, sooner than later, those cars will be driving themselves around and changes the whole model of ownership, of cars. But, you know, the other statistic I would be interested in is the suicide, you know, the likelihood of suicide if you are an associate of the Clintons goes up. Yeah, that's true. Well, no, Ooh, sorry, you, you know, were going to say. Uh, so this touches on a topic we were talking about earlier. I think there's a general sense people have, a lot of people have, that we're seeing the dystopian future now, that everything is breaking down. And I would point to all the statistics you point out that there's no clear... Uh, there's a, things are going wrong in a lot of ways, including, like you're pointing out, life expectancy going down. But there's no clear indication that anyone knows what to do, do about it. And there's no indication that anybody's going to do anything about it. For instance, massive national strikes or something for any issue don't seem to be on the horizon. Daniel, what do you think people can do about the fact that the, the government is seemingly non-responsive to the needs of the people. Well, I mean, Americans are, are caught in this this really dysfunctional system. I mean, uh, that's the problem. And first of all, no, no one's not only is no one doing anything about it, no one's even thinking about it. Um, and uh, the New York Times on its front page had a, had a piece weeping and wailing. How many more deaths can we put up with? But you know, they, 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 they then quote rabbis and priests sort of commenting on why Americans should care more. But that's not an answer. You know, I mean, I mean, what concretely can be done? And Americans have a have a government which was created in the late 18th century when when the U.S. consisted of four million people, you know, strung along the Atlantic seaboard, 20 percent of them uh, of them slaves. Um, and it's just the whole structure is just wildly unsuited to the needs of a kind of a continental power with 300, was it 331 million people now? Uh, you know, one of the biggest countries on the face of the earth with this growing list of problems that people can't even begin to think about in any kind of rational way. So, you know, so... So, you know, it's like it's a little bit like being on the, the deck of the, of the Titanic. I mean, you've struck an iceberg. It's taking on water. Uh, people are, are running around like, like crazy, but no one really has a clue as to how to, say, how to turn things around or whether they really can be turned around. I mean, and, and I'm really serious. I mean, I, I mean a 1.6-year decline in, uh, in life expectancy is extraordinary and absolutely unparalleled. In advanced industrial nations, 
Um, we thought, what do you think? What do you think about the rise in you know genetically modified foods and chemical preservatives and processed seed oils and all these things that you know Russia, for instance, has banned GMO food. We were just talking to the last guest about he's an American guy living in Moscow. He says that the produce and the strawberries and everything are taste so much better. They taste like when he was a kid. And, you know, I just turned 50 and I do believe in the last 40 years between Monsanto and the industrialization of every single agricultural thing, we probably more than any other country have been eating poison food for the past 40 years. Yeah. That's the, um, or yeah. Does that sound right to you? Sorry. That does sound right to me. Uh, there was a story about a, a, a Soviet, a little Soviet boy who emigrated to the United States uh, in the 1990s. And uh, he's like 10 or 11 years old. He goes to the supermarket and his mother buys him some strawberries. And he never saw strawberries that tasted, that, that, that looked so beautiful and tasted so bad. Uh, right. I mean, I think I think I think the American diet is really bad. I think it's really evolved mm-hmm. in very dangerous ways. I mean, it's been over-industrialized tremendously. But the problem is, Americans don't get any exercise. They spend they spend hour, they spend twice as many hours behind the wheel as other uh, as, as citizens of other nations do. I mean, if you want to if you want to fetch a bottle of milk. You have to get into your SUV, buckle up, head out on a highway, you know, you know, tr- you know, drive 20, mil- 20 minutes through uh, to traffic clogged highways, you know, go to some Seven uh, Eleven, get your milk, reverse the process. That's mad. I mean, in an, any normal society, you would simply walk to the corner store. And well, let me let me let me push back a little bit. I think that. American, we're exceptional, obviously, but I don't think we're unique among nations. I think a lot of countries in Europe are also seeing an increase in problems and increasingly seeing, they're talking about this in Duran this morning, about leaders who are completely unresponsive to the people. They were mentioning in Europe, all these leaders, whether it's the UK, Germany, France, they don't seem to care that the policies that they have are making life worse for citizens. So I'm not pushing back in the sense that, again, Americans are exceptional at it. But we have an especial problem. But do you see the same thing happening? A, a, a government that's increasingly detached from what its voters and what its citizens care about. Daniel? Of course, of course. I mean, the, the war in the Ukraine is the obvious thing. I mean, who the hell wants a uh, an energy shutdown? Who the hell wants to see their country go into recession? You know, due to a problem that was largely created by uh, by NATO. I mean, who wants to see this? I and mean, do any German workers want to be thrown out of work? I don't think so. But that's their that's what their governments are doing. I mean, I mean, let me let me get something let me get something straight. I mean, these tendencies are far in advance of the U.S. I mean, I was, I was in France last summer, and I was bowled over by the quality of life compared to the U.S. Uh, you know, it's just remarkable. Food is cheaper. It's better. Uh, the, the cities are lovelier. The people are healthier, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, 
So these tendencies are far more advanced in the U.S. than they are elsewhere. But the same things are happening, are starting to happen over there. And certainly this, this insane policy, this insane war, which is going to just plunge the entire continent into recession, I mean, that just makes no sense at all. I mean, clearly European political leaders have abandoned their responsibility. They have caved into U.S. pressure. They have they've essentially allowed the U.S. to call the shots. Um, and now they find themselves in a, in a, in a giant mess. And, and they'll be there because the consequences for them will be far more severe than they will be for the U.S. Jason. Well, you know, I agree. I really agree. I think these things are, are happening uh, maybe 20 years behind in European countries. And France is an interesting case because it's such a uh, gastronomically focused culture. I think they've resisted some of the type of fake food products like hydrogenated oils and things like that, high fructose corn syrup that are particularly detrimental to people's health. And I think along the lines of what Daniel was saying, it's a deadly cycle because when people aren't getting exercise and they're eating this really toxic food and they're driving an hour to go to work, you get this real sedentary lifestyle. But, you know, Lee, to speak about a point you raised, Canada passing a law that essentially bans handguns, it was also announced in the National Post just like an hour ago that they're going to temporarily decriminalize some drugs including cocaine, MDMA, and opioids for personal use by adults in British Columbia to help tackle a burgeoning drug abuse problem in the province. So, I mean, if that makes any sense to you, I'd love an explanation, but I don't think that's going to help the abuse problem. Oh, I disagree. You made it. Yeah, go ahead, Daniel. No, I, I totally disagree. I think I think criminalization has been one of the great disasters. You know, that was that. That's just, this is why. Drug fatalities are going up. Drug fatalities have gone up, with one exception, every year since Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs in 1971. Um, in 1971, marijuana was brought over by Mexican day laborers on on buses. They bring along a you know a, a bag you know a, a shopping bag full of pot, then unload for a few dollars, and they would like you no know, therefore you know take home the extra money to the, uh, to their families back in Mexico. Um, you know, by the late seventies, however, when the federal government started cracking down on the marijuana trade, which by this point was now centered in South Florida and was involving light aircraft, literally bales of marijuana were falling from the sky or then they were <laughs> as well. But, but when, when the federal government cracked down on that, what happened? What happened? Well, marijuana got fairly scarce and very expensive, and suddenly there was a flood of cocaine. And the reason there was a flood of cocaine is that coke is dense, odorless, therefore easy to smuggle, um, and a zillion times more profitable than uh, than marijuana. Today we have fentanyl, which is displaced uh, heroin. Fentanyl is any the fentanyl and its various derivatives are anywhere from thirty to a hundred times as as potent gram for gram as a, as as heroin. It's, it's it's so compact it's essentially impossible to stop, impossible to intercede at the border at the borders. 
Um, and it's so immensely profitable that a few that 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 fentanyl worth you know a few tens of thousands of dollars can be used to generate pills that will sell for perhaps a thousand times as much. So it's a it's a vast markup that essentially makes the makes the drug trade unbeatable. So clearly, criminalization has been one of the great disasters. It's it was it's well. If I can interject just for a second, Daniel, I think if we're talking about the range of marijuana to fentanyl, it's a huge spectrum, and we also you can't just gloss over it without discussing the societal impact of each of those substances, and to just say that. You know, criminalizing everything. I mean, listen, I'm all for the legalization of marijuana. I recognize that alcohol is a drug and that's legal. Cigarettes, nicotine, that's legal. I think we need to make certain, uh, you know, value judgments about it's one thing to make those things legal. Cocaine, MDMA, fentanyl. These are dangerous drugs that are very destructive to society. So I think it's a complicated problem. Can't just legalize them all. I'm not sure you want to legalize fentanyl. I don't know. I've not looked into it. You know, someone once called once called Prohibition in the 1920s, a, a giant conspiracy to make people give up good beer and switch to bathtub gin. And bathtub gin was just like a rot gut poison. Um, and so, so the, 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 drug, the drug war of the last 50 years essentially has tipped the market from pot to fentanyl. Now, anything we can do to unwind that process uh, is, um, is, is welcome. And fentanyl is used, by the way, to, to cut a lot of other drugs. And so kids have no idea what's in it, what's in the pills they purchase. So a kid may, may think he's purchasing MDMA, a, a mild hallucinogen, and it may contain actually a major amount of fentanyl, and then he'll die. Right. Now, no one wants that. No one wants some kid to die, or no one in his right mind wants some kid to die. So anything we can do to unwind this, to to back up to the to the fork, you know, the fork in the road we 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 we, uh, we passed you know uh, uh, 50 years ago and took clearly the wrong turn. So we've got to throw the car in reverse, back up, and then come to that fork and then take the right turn. And clearly, this is this whole policy is completely out of control and and fantastically self-destructive. Now, Daniel, how much is, do you think is, is complicated by the fact that the current world, politics is only part of what affects the lives of daily people, of people on a daily basis, I mean, forgive me. What I mean by that is unelected groups like the World Economic Forum, for instance, or even the FDA is on unelected technocratic boards have increasing power and in some cases are more powerful than any political system. And those don't fit squarely. You know, if we talk about capitalism versus communism, for instance, where does the WEF fit in that? I would say it's off to the side somewhere, but it really affects people. How much of this is complicated by the new politics of unelected bureaucracies? technocratic or, or, or take the power of Silicon Valley, for instance, which is almost seemingly outside the regulatory structure. What do you think, Daniel? I, I totally agree. Uh, what state do you think 
is the one which gives more, most power to these unelected boards. What state in the U.S.? No, no idea. The answer is Texas. Texas has a weak part-time legislature and a weak governorship. And all policies made by 200 boards, state boards, governing everything from oil drilling to energy, et cetera, which are appointed in staggered terms with minimal oversight. Nobody has any idea what they do. Government is totally invisible. And since the board members all come from the same country club set in Houston and Dallas, you know, it's a, it's a giant, you know, men's club, you know, filled with people like, you know, James Baker and, uh, and, uh, and George W. Bush, uh, Jr. Um, so, you know, so, so yeah, government by, by unelected obscure boards and which are completely unaccountable and on the international, international level, like, you know, like the, the world bank and the IMF, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is completely undemocratic. And, and all over the world, ordinary citizens feel dwarfed and disempowered by this turn towards, you know, towards anonymous government. I mean, the EU is a, the EU is a perfect example. You know, there's a, there's a European Council and a, can a Council of Europe and no one, and not one person in a thousand has any idea what the difference is between the two. But yet they govern their lives in profound ways. Um, and there's no way, there's no one to complain to. There's no one to argue with. It's completely um, uh, 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 non-transparent. Opaque. That was the word I was looking for. And it's not working out well for Europe. It's it's pretty obvious that this winter is going to be especially hard because food prices are rising, yeah. petrol prices are rising, gas prices are rising, natural gas, and it's going to affect. But the leaders seem to not care. And in England, they seem to have a specific problem. People don't like Johnson, but they don't see any alternative. Yeah. Are you saying... A lack of options for citizens, Daniel. I'm saying a lack of democracy. I mean, you know, in the, uh, I mean, at least in England, in England itself, you have a parliament, and so the, uh, and parliament is is relatively transparent. So there is accountability. Um, you know, that's why a lot of a lot of Brits voted to to leave the EU. You know, but the EU itself, there's you know, it's there's there's minimal transparency. All these opaque, you know, uh, anonymous boards that are governing, you know, fundamental, fundamental aspects of everyday life. And then you throw onto that the, the, uh, the war in the Ukraine, which is brought about by the fact that, that, that this disunited, discombobulated monster called the EU slash NATO was happy to, 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 shove, you know, to, to shuffle foreign policy off onto the U.S., and now the U.S. is making a giant mess of the whole thing. There's a very, very dangerous war with a significant chance of a, of a nuclear of, go, of going nuclear. And whether that chance is one percent or three percent or five percent, you know, anything like that is is, is absolutely terrifying. 
Uh, and, and it's because the Europeans were, were happy to defer to the U.S., which is 5,000 miles away, and it had, had its own severe political problems. It's been, you know, it itself is in a state of advanced breakdown. So, you know, so the political structure is really falling apart, and it's very dangerous. Great conversation, Daniel Zarr. Thank you so much. Weeklyworker.uk.co.uk, forgive me, is where to find his work. Daniel, always love having you on the show. Thanks very much. Thanks so much to John Mark Dugan, first-time guest earlier, and Jason, as usual. Great job as co-host. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lee. We'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory. Thank you.